0: Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Moonlighters Club. I'm your host Joel Edwards. Maurice, what's going on?
1: Not much, man. Just taking it day by day. Thank you for so much. Uh, thank you so much for having me on.
0: Thanks for doing this. Thanks, thanks for joining. So, I was just talking to Maurice right before he jumped on. Today is a very special episode. <laughs> Earlier today, I just got laid off. So technically, Maurice, I'm cheating. I guess I'm an <laughs> entrepreneur. Yeah, it was man. It's been nuts. It's something that I knew. It's the company was restructuring and then basically tightening its belt, its revenue belt. And I mm. knew, I, it, you see it happening around you, and I'm like, why am I, you start looking at the stuff you're doing, you're like, I don't know, if I were running the show, I don't know how safe I'd be. So it was one of those situations. So I'm not that upset. The The Moonlighters Club is going to a place that I feel very confident in, actually. We are doing, we did a lot of work with, I used to just do interviews, I used to just do events. And Luckily, a friend of mine who runs the Boston Ujima Project, those great people over there, gave me some contract work to interview people that are in their good business alliance. With that thinking in mind, I, I want to do that for companies. I basically want to go to companies. And, and if you're listening to this, you've probably listened to me talk about this on the podcast before. I usually want to highlight moonlighters at companies, and hopefully I can launch off with that. And I'm always complaining about having to work. Now I don't have that excuse. For the time <laughs> being, I don't have that excuse. <laughs> we'll see what happens. So let's get with well, today's Bob Maurice, though. That's what it's about. We're so, It's a celebration more so than anything. I met Maurice through a great guy named Mike, who is in the Lost Without Japan interview. Mike's just one of those, in life, you just meet like genuinely nice people who are just nice. And you're like, God damn, that dude is nice. That's mine. And he forwarded me your information. I reached out. Maurice, we had a great conversation. So let's put it, we're going to put it on the, we're going to put it on the cast and talk about it. Maurice, where are
1: you from? I am from North Carolina, but from New York originally. Moved around, I guess, like the, the East Coast all the way down to Atlanta at one point, but then found myself and my family in North Carolina.
0: All right, there you go. Greensboro, correct?
1: That's it. That's it.
0: Yeah. I got to give a shout out to North Carolina North a Carolina and That's where my wife went to college. I did not, but I did go to homecoming, had a great time. It's wild. Um, yeah, it is. It is. It was so dope. I had a really good time <laughs> there. Really good time. So did you? are you a college guy? Did you leave high school, leave the state, go to school, stay in the state, go to school? Was that your path?
1: Yeah, went to high school, then graduated there, went to UNCG in Greensboro for film studies, but also got a minor in psychology and almost got another minor in sociology uh, because my original path was to go to grad school and get my master's and probably cognitive psych or some kind of like behavior modification kind of focus. But that didn't happen because after undergrad, I needed to make some money. Yes. So that's. That entered into the kind of the corporate sector professional world.
0: Yeah. that's And that suck like how capitalism basically just crushes
1: dreams. <laughs> You're just like, oh, hey, no, yeah. I want to change the world. And then you have rent. Right. <laughs> no. And it, it catches up really quickly before you know it, you have to make money. And so those people who have that buffer or that, that support system that allows them to pursue those dreams from very early on. So there's not that that gap of getting out into the real world and realizing, hey, this kind of sucks or this is not for me. You know, you're one of the people out there who has that ability to not float, but pursue things that speak to your heart sooner rather than later, please do it. Take advantage of those opportunities to explore and be curious and fail. A lot of people do not have that buffer or that support system that allows them to dream and explore without abandon because they got to go make some money. So if you're someone that, Hold that off for a little bit of time and explore your passions. It could become a career before you know it. And even if it doesn't, you're going to learn a whole lot about yourself and those around you very quickly. Yeah.
0: Okay. Outside of you graduate, did you go right into the industry you're in, like straight from college?
1: Oh, yeah. I've been there at this company for over a decade, and I've stayed there because they've given me so much freedom. And the pay is embedded. They pay my student loans. Nice. Bonuses. Nice. Uh, I get close to 40 paid days off a year. Oh my God. Um, yes. So, that, and a lot of times, if you give them a couple days heads up, I need to leave the country or go do something. They're like, sure, just make sure you got this stuff done. Then we'll see you when you get back. So that has allowed me to really keep that support system or that th- appease the capitalistic gods while also still pursuing my artistic Endeavors and my whims and my dreams and things like that. So as much as I despise the whole company man kind of image, those dudes have allowed me to go out and pursue things outside of that building.
0: Yeah, I hate it when you like your company and the PBU worker. It's like God, I just want to dislike everything about this, but. (laughs) Nice Perfect. is nice. Right. Hey, right. sometimes it's is good. Did you already say the industry? What industry was it? Did I miss
1: that? So I don't want to be too p- specific, right. but I work exactly. kind of mortgage finance, but more specifically in like a quality assurance capacity. I have a team that's under me and I do some behind the scenes stuff as far as data integrity, but it's very boring mm-hmm. and it doesn't really speak to my creative ideas at all. But like I said previously, it's very secure. They treat me well. And you can't ask that, ask much more than that from a job nine to five.
0: Have you always had this creative side to you? Is it something that developed later in life or were you always, did you always have that muscle?
1: Oh, I always had it. I always had it. And even during, when I had this job, I've shot a couple feature films just to try things out. I, I spent my own money both times. I'm not one of those guys that is looking to spend other people's money and I get it because you know, that, that kind of, protects yourself and your own assets. But that also means that you have to kind of bend to the people that bring in the money, right? I've always wanted that kind of creative freedom to do what I want, explore exactly what I want. I'm not a money guy because I'm not rich by any means. But if, the, if I get a wild hair in my ass and I want to try something out, I'll go to the ATM or get the credit card out or my debit card out, put some bills in some pot in some people's hands and say, let's go try this. And that's something that that for me, has always really worked out, and I suggest to other people: if you have an idea of pursuing something and you believe in it, you, you and I or not just you and I, but anyone. We're paying money towards someone else's creative pursuits all the time, whether we're renting movies or buying clothes or buying books or whatever. But if you have the same kind of goals, why not put that directly into yourself? I know the term "invest in yourself" is cliched, but it's very true. And if you can, if you can pay for someone else's creative output. You can pay for your own as well or fund your own.
0: How did you get into film? What was it? Yeah. How did you get into it?
1: Oh, film school. You meet some people and um, I'm going to ask you a question that you can edit out or not. It's up to you. How honest can I be about, I guess, race relations and what that may have been my motivation for pursuing arts or whatever? Because I don't want to upset your audience if I dig into things that kind of motivated me.
0: Oh, no, this is your story. So I want you to be able to be clear and transparent. I don't care if you're okay. the nicest person ever or if you're the most militant black person I've ever met in my entire life. It is all fine with me. <laughs> OK, just, OK. Totally well,
1: I'm not that militant. I do. At one point, I did have a bit of a chip on my shoulder because I did go to film school yeah. and Spike Lee was a big, oh, yeah. con- the, a huge um, uh, inspiration of mine and outside of do the right thing being part of the curriculum because it's a masterpiece he's one of the youngest people ever to be like recognized like he's in his early 20s and he's already like sparking conversations as a filmmaker that's something that everybody wishes they could do along with John Singleton who i believe John Singleton was the youngest director to be nominated for best director at the academy awards he didn't win but he was nominated in like early 20s for boys in the hood but outside the big ones You couldn't get people to watch African-American cinema in film studies or film school at that school. It was a great school, but the people that were attending it, they just, like I said, if Do the Right Thing was not in part of the curriculum, you weren't getting anyone to watch it. And I remember when I got to film school, it was always, have you seen Star Wars? Have you seen Pulp Fiction? Have you seen Workroom for a Dream or Donnie Darko? And I've never seen an entire Star Wars movie until the Phantom Menace because it just didn't it didn't interest me. I'm not really a sci-fi guy. I'm much more of a drama person. And so when people would ask me, "Have you seen Star Wars?" and I'm like, "No, I haven't seen that." They're like, "How can you be in film school and you haven't seen Star Wars?" And I'm like, "Have you seen Boys in the Hood or Do the Right Thing or Higher Learning or Juice?" And those are by some people who've been nominated for Oscars. I'm like, if you haven't seen that, I don't want to hear anything about Star Wars. And so. Film is very much a collaborative effort. And in film school, it's democratic a lot of times. And so a lot of the material that would be voted on getting made, it just didn't speak to my lived experience or my interests or the films that I've been watching. So you get voted down a lot, right? So I left film school and upset is not the right word, but feeling as if I didn't get to pursue my artistic ideas to the full extent that I wanted to. So I got this corporate job pretty soon after college. I started bringing in money and I've always been a minimalist person. I don't go and blow my money on clothes or shoes or all that kind of stuff. I just don't. I was one of the first people early on that I'm like, wait a second, I have money in the bank and it's just sitting there. I wasn't really interested in investing at that point. Let me go make the stuff that I want to make. And very early on, it just took off. And I was getting some kind of, I was getting a little notoriety. Like for instance, I directed a short called, I wrote and directed a short called A Letter to My Son. And that won me some awards, won me some money. Just a couple of years ago, it was licensed by like an urban kind of streaming platform. Last year, it was licensed by the Fox Network. I got to be interviewed by Vivica A. Fox on television. That was pretty cool. And that was because I followed my ideas on what I felt drawn to the Black experience, the Black male experience, things like that. Um, But that was just like a, that was content that I felt like I have to get this out of me. When you have something in you, there are these stories that you need to tell. Those were those stories. And it's served me well ever since. I've been on front of magazines. Regional magazines. I've been interviewed, local papers, several times for that one short film. That wouldn't have happened if I was making the stuff that people wanted to make in film school. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. I, for a second, I thought you were going to say uh, you got interviewed by a Fox on Fox, and I was going to go, "That's nice." But no, I, there was a the, yeah. There, hearing you go through this journey is interesting because there was. People don't understand. Like, folks get upset. Oh, all this. Why is everything got to be so racial? Why is all this black stuff? Black history. It's like y'all don't understand. Like, I'm going to be 40 this year. Black cinema was niche. Like, you just had a couple gangster movies, and that was even that was new for us. Seeing a rapper in a right. movie, you not see that all the time. It really was just like Spike, and that was it. So it was, he was extremely influential for young filmmakers, young actors, young actresses to see things like Do the Right Thing. My, by the way, my favorite. Just to give you gauge you on on, on Joel's Blackness scale, my favorite Spike Lee movie is Bamboo. It's fucking Bamboo
1: was so ahead of its time. Oh my god. So ahead
0: of its time, man. It's we're living it out right now. It's nuts. Absolutely. Yeah. So I love how you wanted to make something that you wanted to see and you went out and did it. So you've always have you always done film while working? The, where these where they've always lived asynchronously since you jumped into your profession.
1: Absolutely. The entire time. In that time, also, I directed a feature film that I have in the can, but I don't know what I'm going to do with it because I spent a lot of money. And I'm sure you've heard the story about lots of creatives, creatives, whether it's in movies or music. There will be someone who will give you a platform, but are they going to take all your money? Are they going to cook the contracts or the books or not be transparent? And so there is a lot of that when it comes to independent film, where I had this movie, um, I showed it to a lot of people after it got to its final version with it being scored and all that stuff like that. And people were like, we want it. And I'm like, show me the paperwork where I'm going to make my money back. Show me where, let's talk about capping your marketing fees. Because one thing that for distributors, this is, I'm going to shit all over them for a second. The bad ones. Let's please say, do,
0: please. I'm, today is the perfect day for me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Any structure or middlemen. Yes. All of it. Right. So there are some bad distributors out there and good ones, but there are some bad distributors out there. They'll ask for 20% or something like that off the bat, which is too high if they're going to be like a salesperson or they'll say, we're going to market your stuff. And the marketing budget within the contract is like another 15 or 20 or 30 grand. But what they don't tell you is that marketing budget also applies to, like, their say, for instance, they said they're going to go to a conference to promote your film, right? That 30 grand of your marketing is their dinners, their mimosas, their jack on the rocks, their steaks, their hotels. So here you are essentially paying for them to go on nice vacations, but they can bill that as marketing. And that's a known trick. You're just paying for their lifestyle and it's disguised as marketing dollars. So there are a lot of things out there for filmmakers. Look, if you're trying to find a distributor or a sales agent and they're talking about, I'm going to recoup these expenses, ask them specifically, what are these expenses? You should know because a lot of people get screwed over that way. Or you say, no, there is no marketing budget because nowadays with the Internet, right, we have Facebook. We have Google ads, we have Instagram ads. I've ran marketing campaigns for a variety of projects. You can do that yourself. Don't let someone tell you that they need $20,000 to do marketing for your film or your project and all they did was do a couple of reels or Instagram reels and a Facebook page and post once a day for two months and say that costs $20,000. I've run ambitious ad campaigns on all of those things. And let me tell you, it doesn't have to cost $20,000. So just, I have a lot of skepticism when, when it comes in regards to that kind of stuff, because that's how a lot of people make their money. The money isn't in you being a success. The money is in you paying them. It's almost like one of those weird things, like a lot of those Instagram gurus that are teaching people how to be successful, right? Right. If you're so successful, why are you taking a break (laughs) to make money off people on courses and all those other stuff like that? So I think that there's, view a lot of this stuff with a skeptical eye and then also reach out to people who are in the position that you want to be in and ask them about the path this path or that path and say, Hey, look, is this real? Is this tangible? Is it going to result in me being able to support myself? Can this transition into a full-time career or am I just wasting all this time and money to give someone else a nice lifestyle? Just take your time move slowly when it matters and do your research. Do your due diligence and make sure that you're, you're taking the right course for your product or your career.
0: If people don't already know this, when you're especially creatives, when you take money, our investment, or you partner with someone else, and you have to pay money. A lot of that money just pays people. Just it's going to staff. So when you see a price like, oh, I need marketing help. Let me look it up. And they're like, oh, it's going to be ten thousand to do something, or a thousand to do something. You're paying for someone else to do what you could possibly be doing on your own, or absolutely. At the most, you're paying for relationships. So basically, you're just paying for the fact that one person knows another person. So it's, to your point, there are ways, cer- certain things are blocked by paywalls, that makes sense, like minerals, <laughs> resources. Right. You're like, oh, I got to get this camera. that. But a lot of it, you're just paying for just structures that are in place before you start it. And there, generally, there can be ways around it. If you, or You'll just have to spend time. And that's how I view money now in terms of mm-hmm. entrepreneurship is where do I want to spend my time? Right. If we're doing this podcasting, is how much time is editing and money is editing worth to me versus speaking right. and traveling. And that's really it. And I realize where I don't want to spend my money, find the deals on that. And if I just realize I'm just paying a bunch of people, to do a bunch of stuff, then I probably shouldn't be in that industry or doing that because I just don't want to do it. No, so I like your way of just getting that. You got to get out there. You want to know how stuff works behind the scenes.
1: Oh yeah. One of the, one of the best ways to get screwed is to not know how things work.
0: <laughs> exactly. You Oh, you got to edit. Oh man. That those F sounds. It's going to be 700 a minute. (laughs) You're like, what? You just Google it. You're like, oh, wait, that was all he did. Okay, cool.
1: I've been in situations where someone we a long time ago before we really knew about the technical aspects of audio recording on set. And we were in a hotel shooting in a hallway that had a light. The lights in the hotel hallway had like a buzz to them, right, that the audio mics would pick up. And initially some editor was like, oh, that's going to cost $50 $50 50, $50 an hour to take that buzz out. It just It's going to take me all day to do that. And my buddy who was getting into more film editing and things like that, he's like, dude, that's a plugin. There is a plugin that you put in Adobe Premiere at the time that will scan that audio for that frequency of that noise and take it out. It takes three minutes. But the guy knew that and he was scamming me. And I would have paid somebody a lot of money to do that, that my friend could have my my friend found out through research literally took minutes. So again, I really don't know what to say. Do your do do your due diligence. Find out the real answers because people will take advantage of your lack of knowledge.
0: Yeah, and one thing I want to say, you don't always have to be the talent. It's I everyone has a phase. It is what it is. It's entertainment. Whether it's right. sports, movies, sync, like it, it it just is what it is. It's best to know how things work behind the scenes. Absolutely, it just it's for for so many reasons. So no, learn your stuff, edit, D- do other th- right correct, clean up. Quality says all of that, do all of it and your life will be so much better. So much better in the long
1: run. I 100% agree. Absolutely.
0: So, we got here through a mutual love of oh, wait, before I do that, what's your favorite yeah. movie?
1: My favorite movie of all time, or just in a particular genre?
0: You know what? Let's I won't even pigeonhole it. Let's do your favorite of all time, and there's just some favorite ones in different genres that you
1: like. Ooh! All right. When you ask a film person, it's just like asking for trouble, right?
0: Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Oh! oh I know.
1: <laughs> so I think that my favorite film of all time that has probably had a huge impact on me, and probably not for the same reasons that a lot of people think they are, does is Blade Runner. Ooh! I like it. Yeah, and the interesting thing about that is Blade Runner is just as much about bodily autonomy and human rights as it is about sci-fi. And that's one thing that I feel like a lot of people miss when it comes to some of the more like social issues rooted in sci fi. A lot of those people miss that because they're not looking for it. Like it's for all instance, lasers. Like,
0: yeah, I want to see lasers, right. and you're like, no, they're, they're trying to tell you something, bro. I'm
1: gonna, I'm gonna botch the quote, but have you seen Blade Runner?
0: It's been a long
1: time. It's okay, peaceful. I'm not gonna hold that against you because it's not for everybody, and it's it is old. I think it's 35 years old or something, or 40 years, or something like that. I can't remember. But at one point, the antagonist, if you want to call him that, Roy Batty says, "You know what it's like to living in fear." I'm going to botch it, but basically living in fear is what it means to be a slave, right? It's crazy to me because I do gravitate towards so much African-American cinema. A lot of it's rooted in that struggle or achieving bodily autonomy or becoming our own men and our own women or getting rid of gatekeepers and things like that. The root of Blade Runner are people who are who become aware that they're nothing but slave labor and sex slaves and they take their independence by force. And if you look at it, Deckard or Harrison Ford is a futuristic slave catcher. Deckard is not a hero. And that's one of the things that I feel like a lot of people forget when watching Blade Runner. They think that, oh, he's the dude in the trench coat and he's got the gun and he's a hero and they want to give him the woman and things like that. And even when it comes to Rachel, who is like the love interest in the film, she is an android a replicant or whatever, who he initially deems as not worth his time, or if she had gone rogue, would be someone that he would kill without a second thought. But through personal interactions, he gets the ability, he gains the ability to see that she is his person who also has these hopes and these dreams, and that they're just as worthy as his, Right. And then that he runs away with her, et cetera, et cetera. But Blade Runner is a trip. I love it. But that's I can talk about that all day. As far as stuff outside of that, I really do love Bamboozled. I bought the Criterion edition not too long ago. Um, I'm a big fan of 25th Hour, which is another Spike Lee film. Oh, I need to
0: see that. Say again? I need to see that. I have not seen it.
1: Oh, man. It has one of the best monologues I've ever seen in my life. It's fantastic. Oh, when Edward
0: Norton goes nuts and he says, fuck this, fuck that. That oh, one? yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. I'm watching it this weekend.
1: Oh, man. When you see it in the context of the entire film, it works so well. It's perfect. It's really great. Oh, gosh. Some Akira Kurosawa stuff. Like I said, John, a lot of John Singleton stuff. I love Higher Learning. I love Boys in the Hood. Oh, gosh. Some Hughes Brothers stuff like, what was it? Don't Be a Menace. Menace to Society. Don't Be a Menace to Society. Yep. Menace to Society is also fantastic. I love that. Juice is another one that I really love. I think that There are just these films that kind of showcase a lot of like the youthful black experience in a way that I feel like we don't really get now. We get more of it, but there was something about those 80s African-American films that can't be touched today. They've expanded and gotten better or different. Like now we have things like Moonlight, which I think is a brilliant film. I don't know if you've ever seen that before. That was a
0: great film. I used to do That's the uh, the best picture package they would do at AMC theaters where you'd watch oh, yeah. everyone, they'd give you a pass, you could watch all the best nominees. I enjoyed Moonlight. I really liked it.
1: Oh, I love Moonlight. And when I tell people of Moonlight, it's, I remember one time I was having a really lively debate with someone. And I said to them, I said, Moonlight, while it has homosexual characters, it's not about homosexuality. And they're like, what are you talking about? I said the way that I perceived because obviously this art is subjective right? and we all experience the elements in a film differently based on our lived experience, our worldview, other entertainment that we've digested. It all shapes that perception when we take things in. And for me, Moonlight was like this really excellent poetic experience or kind of like story about African-American men finding community. Uh, receiving compassion being listened to in a genuine way because if you look at the film throughout the different stages of the protagonist's life th- where is that community where is that safe place where is that sense of belonging that sense of acceptance outside of him his intimate interactions at in all stages of his life there is that that journey for acceptance Uh, For love. And that's why at the end of the film, spoiler alert, sorry guys, if you haven't seen it, at the end of it, there isn't some like crazy sex scene or makeout scene. They have a conversation. Someone listens to him, probably genuinely for the first time in years. And at the end, he holds him. And I think that there are a lot of African American men out there who have not had that sort of like emotional kind of connection where they feel completely welcomed, completely embraced, physically or emotionally. And I think that's the key of the film. And I think a lot of people, if you go back and view it that way, it opens up a lot. And I, that's how I viewed it, anyway. But it's a beautiful film, and it's one of my current favorites as well.
0: Nice. I like. I can talk about this all day. Uh, like as soon as you <laughs> as soon as you brought Twenty Fifth Hour, I love American History. Four that stick with me are Goodfellas, Saving Private Ryan. I can't help but watch it every Memorial Day. It's just man, mm-hmm. this scene, these scenes are insane. Those two, Snatch. I love mm. Guy Ritchie. It's all over the place. And No Country for Old Men. No Country for
1: Old Men is a banger. It's just great. (laughs) It's just great. (laughs) So dark. The interesting thing about that, I was talking to my sister, and she said she hated it. And I'm like, why did you hate it? And she goes, because the bad guy won. And I'm like, why does that bother you so much? And she couldn't articulate it. But that at the core of it, that really bothered her. When you catch up with Josh Brolin... And he's been X'd out. She was like, what is this?
0: Yeah, I had a friend who hated it. He wanted it to be super theatrical. And I'm like, that's how life is. It's not. (laughs) You're here and then you're gone. And then the world goes on without you.
1: And it's just. Absolutely. The bad guy in real life gets banged up, but they don't die. They just get up and they go on to the next person. And I think that was a harsh truth for a lot of people. We're used to a lot of conventional films when there is that kind of traditional kind of triumph. And that film wants nothing to do with that.
0: Exactly. (laughs) Nope. No. No. We're gonna crush your dreams. So we actually we met through you and Mike, a past guest, a future guest. I don't know how I'm gonna order these episodes. Okay. But Mike from Lost Without Japan through a love of Japan. And it's a place I have yet to go to. I will I think I'll make a date for it next year. This year I'm gonna hit up Scandinavia for my fortieth. Let's go Vikings. But you've we talked about Japan. You've been there, you say six times?
1: Yeah, like half a dozen times, yep.
0: Nice. What is the project that you discussed? I'll let you I'll let you describe it so I don't oh, so I don't yeah. undershoot it.
1: Oh no, uh, the project is a photo book called Ganbate which loosely translates to good luck, do your best, that sort of thing and it's the culmination of three trips that I went to in Japan and it's a variety of film formats from digital photography to Instax Mini, Instax Wide, 35 millimeter photography, some Polaroid SX-70, just a wide variety of these photo formats. And the goal of the book is to recreate and elicit those feelings of looking through an old school kind of like photo album, like when we all sat down on the family couch and brought out the big photo albums with the cellophane paper and the glue backs and everything like that. It's supposed to bring about those reminiscent feelings of that because one thing that I found out very quickly was that depending on how you take photos and the format you can take photos, it's almost like they become like this anachronism. You don't know when you took the photo. I'm a I'm an old guy. I'm thirty eight, gonna be thirty nine this year. And that's old Nice man. old guy crew. <laughs> so the 80s babies we know about that right we know about those photo albums those big hulking photo albums and i didn't want to take photos of japan that looked like have you ever heard of the term paris syndrome i have not so paris syndrome is this it's this thing where we are fed information about a place typically it's over romanticized case in point paris and when people get there there is a, an overwhelming sense of disappointment and shock when it's not the way that they were told it was going to be. Paris syndrome can result in disorientation, increased heart rate, sweating, things like it's a real thing. From Apparently, though, it's primarily experienced by Asians who go to Paris, but it also can be experienced by other people as well. And it's basically like the places where we're told are one way, are we being misled, right? And a lot of the photography that, especially in a younger kind of like instagram photographer realm a lot of the tokyo photography is a blatant falsehood it's not cyberpunk's tokyo was not blue and purple and neon red everywhere it's not
0: okay now i'm a little upset because i was expecting cyberpunk like i'm like As- yo it's gonna be no. everything flying around it's gonna be nuts
1: <laughs> <laughs> i can't wait to go no man i remember being told that a lot of times predominantly they're still using fax machines in office buildings like, that's, seriously. Okay,
0: that's just not, I am not. Even, I can't even excuse that.
1: Come yeah, on, a lot of times you can't even pay your bills online, a lot of those places. A lot of documentation you can't do online. You have to go in person and fill that stuff in. This whole, like, Tokyo, Japan is from the future stuff is largely not true. And so a lot of people go in and like, oh, man, J- Japan is the future. And it's just like, wait until you need some paperwork signed, and you have to go in there and sit in the office for three hours. That could have easily been done online in the US or some other country. Nope, not in Japan. You can't do it that way. You're coming, you're getting on the train, you're going to stand in that building in line and just X off your afternoon. That's what it's gonna be. But I don't wanna, like, that being said though, because it's not that, it is still very much an amazing, addictive place that is unlike any place I've ever experienced. And that's why Mike and I are like, we gotta go back. <laughs> because once you've been and it's a place that hits with you, it's always going to hit with you. You can't help it. It really is. I've been to a lot of places, but Japan is foreign in a way that's, wow, I can't describe I, yeah. it.
0: I've heard that from so many people. Like the, you got two weeks minimum and nothing like it. Absolutely. Nothing. And uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, how long has the process been? How long How many, How many? have you been working on the book?
1: Okay. So the first trip was in 2019. And that was with friends, and that was before COVID, right? So none of us really knew it was up. It was just like a regular friend vacation, right? You didn't know what you had, and I think that kind of reality or that realization has gone on all of us that hey, look, we were in 2019 and in early 2020, we were just living life like it always had been. If you live in the West, I feel like Americans in particular are fairly spoiled as far as like things not happening on the U.S. soil, right? Outside of like things like 9/11. But relatively speaking, we don't have these great disturbances like say places like in the Middle East or places like in in like Burma or Africa where there's civil unrest. We don't have that in America, right? Um so as an American, I'm like, oh, this we're just everything is great. If you have if you can afford a plane ticket and have some vacation, this is always gonna be great. We can always do what we wanna do. And then later in 2019, we start hearing about COVID. And then things start closing and people start dying. And it dawned on me that those set of photos really represented the time where I was. And I don't want to crap on myself. Not uh, Oblivious is not the word. Carefree is not the word. But just unaware that things could change on a dime. And then in 2020, I knew that Japan was getting fairly antsy when it comes to the whole, where is COVID coming from? And so in March of 2020, I went back right before the border officially closed and I took more photos. I needed to just document it. And at that point a lot of the a lot of the foreigners had left because a lot of them weren't getting their visas renewed, so they had to leave. A lot of stuff was shutting down. A lot of public transportation was quiet and things like that. I have some photos in the middle of central Tokyo during the day on the train and the train is empty. I was the only one on there because there was that 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 fear in the air. And that was wild because it was so unlike my previous trips to Japan, completely unlike that. And I got I left in late March, came back to the states, and I think within a week or two after that, the border completely shut, and also the U.S. has started getting particularly antsy about people coming back into the country from abroad. So I threaded the needle there, and I was like, ooh. But because I'd been in Asia and. The U.S. had broadcast that a lot of it was coming out of Asia. I don't know all the details about that, but I do know it was broadcast to us. And my boss was like, because I didn't tell anybody. I just, I'll up and go on a flight and not tell anybody. Someone told on me through social media, and my boss was like, did you go to Asia? And I was like, yeah. And she goes, you can't come into the building anymore. And then that's how I knew, oh, crap, this is really getting started and then so fast forward through the pandemic and COVID, I had these photos, but nothing to do with it because like I said, I'm old. Social media is a burden to me. I don't feel the urge to do it. And because I'm a filmmaker, I'm always thinking about a body of work anyway, right? Um, I'm always thinking like this overarching theme or an overarching narrative. Posting one photo doesn't do anything for me. Content to, to keep a base, to appease a base doesn't speak to me. I'm not going to create something because I want engagement from 25 to 34 year olds. I'm not going to create content because I want engagement from liberal voters or conservative voters who were predominantly located in the New England or the Southeastern region. I don't do that sort of stuff. There's nothing wrong with that because a lot of people make a lot of money doing those sort of things, tailoring content for particular demographics. I don't want to do that, but that's the name of the game when it comes to social media. But what happened was... I had all these photos that I knew were valuable, and they became like this, almost like time capsule, where I was like, "I need to go back because I feel like I can build a narrative, or at least like an emotional narrative of this time period." And then so I was able to get back into the country before the official border opening, and then I'm like, "Let me create, let me finish off this body of work as this sort of like emotional narrative book." Because I, like I said, I'm old. I love tangible stuff. I love holding things in my hand. And so after I was able to get in there, get my visa before the border opened, it was then like a mad dash to hit up people and communicate with people who I felt could really round out this visual experience of capturing a time where the world really changed and also creating like this weird kind of like visual like narrative of, you don't know if these photos were taken in 1980 or 1990 or today or yesterday. And that's what the goal of the book was and I'm very proud of it.
0: What do you so? What is your plan for the book? Do you want to share it, keep it, keepsake, reproduce?
1: Oh yeah, I've started against my will, but I'm a curmudgeon, but I'm not backwards. The goal is to launch a Kickstarter, right? Nice. And I've launched my Instagram page, which is Gambate dot the dot photo book, and also Gambate the photo book on Facebook. I've partnered with a printing factory we figured out the logistics and how much it would cost and all that stuff like that that was a really interesting kind of entrepreneur entrepreneurial kind of effort that i was completely new to that was like a great kind of exercise in learning how to do things on my own and learning also like you said you don't always have to be the talent and learning things that i couldn't do and where i could source those like that those sort of tasks um, and then yeah so kickstarter is the goal i'm not asking for a lot of money because i'm not a celebrity I just want to fund the book how do you
0: um, spell that how do you spell that Oh, the... so
1: it's g as in giraffe a as an apple n as in noise b as in boy a yep. as an apple t as in tiger t as in tiger and e as an elephant so it's the a photo book. book okay yep and uh i'm we extremely talk. proud of it. it i got so many people on board and i really can't complain it's been a dream come true because once i started telling people you know, what I was trying to create, they were like, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. I'm so proud of it. It's, it's pretty legit. And and I'm almost amazed by myself because I've, I've gotten two samples shipped to me. And once you feel it in your hand, it's not just like a, an email or something like that, or a PDF. I have two of the book already because factories will try to court you. Right. Yep. Once they hear that you're doing something, they're like, hey, can we do it for you? We'll send you a sample. Just give us a couple bucks or let us send you a sample for free. And this is them putting their best foot forward because they know if you're successful, bulk orders are coming. And that's in their best interest to want to get in your good graces. So I had two samples sent to me. Both of them were excellent, but one kind of stood out for a couple reasons. Yeah, I'm probably going to launch the Kickstarter here in about 10 to 12 days. I've shot all kinds of like advertising content so I can drip feed the interest, kind of funnel people in. I've learned a whole lot about marketing myself and targeting demographics and Facebook algorithms and their behind the scene metrics that help them determine what your audience is when you like calculate this and calculate that. It's a wonderful experience where I've learned so much that I know that even after this is over, that's knowledge that I've gained over the course of this where I could take it on to the next project. And it's empowering to be scared and take this journey, not knowing everything, but picking up things along the way. And you're like, whoa, that's how that works. This is how I can build upon this knowledge base and do something better the next time. And that's such a great feeling.
0: Yeah, I love I love statements like that. There's nothing like setting your mind out to doing something and then holding it in your hand. And I think the tangible aspect makes it that much better. We'll do episodes and video, but like I want to do a book. For the Moon Letters Club of episode transcripts. Something I can keep.
1: Oh, man, that would be That's so cool.
0: Keep Just a keepsake, and I think that'd be cool. I also have a movie idea. I, I don't know if I got to make this happen somehow. It's about a guy, or it doesn't have to be a guy. It can be anyone. someone who quits, and it, they have the heart of a moon letter, I want to say, right? They beef with corporate lifestyle. That's the antagonist. But it's about the two-week notice life cycle. What are the emotions you go through during two weeks? And then at the end of the two weeks, what what happens? Does he go back to another job that's the same before? Is he unemployed? But then those problems come. It's something of that nature. I've already started like scribbling and playing when I was working years ago. <laughs> I hated it, but that's yeah There's something. I need something tangible. Just like I, that's why I'm so giddy about your photo book. By the way, I will. I need to get the Kickstarter information from you. I will. I got. I'm following. I want to. Would love to get a, I would love to get a copy. So. I'm gonna support. If you're listening, support. <laughs> no, Japan. thank
1: you so much. And I think I might have sent you the PDF version, so yeah, you can check it out and see what I was going for. But uh, yeah, I like for instance, like the people that you meet when you're out and doing like your thing. Like for instance, I was in Tokyo in a bar district, and I met this really interesting gentleman with a friend of mine. She took me to the bar, and we we're just shooting the shit, or sorry, just talking. <laughs> we're just talking at this bar. And turns out that this dude is from the States, but now he works at Google, right? As some high-ranking executive. And I remember just talking with this guy, he had all these stories, and I remember reaching out to him later on Instagram saying, hey man, you want to be in my book? And he and here's the thing: he eventually said no. But the reason that he said no was flattering. Because what I presented him with and the goals for the book and what I already had he assumed that I had a publishing deal. He was like, this guy has a publishing deal somewhere. This book is going to be on a shelf somewhere. Where's the, wh- what's the money? Where am I going to get paid? And I was like, there's no publishing deal. And he didn't believe me. And that's one of the most flattering rejections I've ever gotten.
0: Nice. Yes. I like because it. He
1: saw, yeah, he saw that I was like serious about this. This wasn't just like a series of Instagram cell phone photos that were just going to be on like an, a Facebook page. Profile or whatever, or an Instagram profile. It was clearly it was something bigger than that, and he pieced that together immediately. And he's what is this dude up to? So he's not in the book, but he's. I still talk with him here and there. He's a great acquaintance. But the people that did that that do appear in the book, they're just a really eclectic group of people. Like I have a, a media producer in there. I have a couple YouTubers in there. Models are in there. I have actors in there. Some buddies of mine are in there. Just this strange, eclectic group of people that you have to see it, like you really have to see it because a lot of the photographers, especially the photography in Tokyo, there is a hesitance to get people to to be in your photos in Japan. It's just a thing. A lot of people don't like having their photo taken. A lot of it's street photography where people snatch photos. And I'm not really about that. I really like asking people, do you want to be in this photo? Because there's something about this kind of communicative, collaborative, physical photo kind of experience, right? When someone wants to be in your photo and you didn't just snatch a moment, it's completely different. And I think a lot of the photography present in of Japan it currently makes it seem very cold and distant and impersonal and it doesn't have to be that. I know that the language barrier is tough for a lot of people but and I don't know any Japanese. I know a few phrases. I can get from to my hotel to the, the airport whatever, but there really is no matter where you go this kind of instinctual inherent drive between human beings to connect and create. I do believe that. And I just took that spirit with me over there and I got so many people to be in my book and I couldn't ask for a better group of people. It's it was a magical experience that Really captured several points in my life that I'm extremely proud of.
0: Nice, right, and so I'm glad to hear it. I'm excited. I'm excited to see. Congratulations, first of all, on, Thank on you. completing. That's for anyone out there. It's it's not about the money. It's about setting, doing, completing something you set out to do. It's is huge, and we have all the excuses. All of us. We have all probably a pretty good reasons on why we can't get things done. Life is not easy, so. Whatever passion project you have out there, or business you have out there, just getting something done that really meant a lot to you, that's something to be proud of. And I'm happy 100%. you were able to get that with this book. So once we get the details, I'll make sure to share on all the networks that I can. I'm going to support it. Maurice, thank, thank you so much. much. This was a great conversation. I really appreciate Absolutely.
1: it. Absolutely. And it's- I have to, to, A, applaud you for your really just opportunistic, not opportunistic, but optimistic outlook today especially giving a platform to people who are dreaming bigger than just their 9 to 5 i spoke to to mike last week and i said hey look man your podcast is information and value dense and i said the same thing to you like i listened to three or four of your episodes today the one from kush groove was yeah. excellent that nice, one so good i really liked one that one the another one that was really a favorite of mine was the entrepreneur the proprietor of prickly the juice yeah yeah that one is really good. I really like that one. And it's interesting because like you listen to them speak and their vernacular styles are very different, right? Yeah. One is this dude and one is this pharmacist. But if you listen to them, their ideas about making something happen are the same. The words are different, but the hustle, the 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 idea making, going out and getting it, if you could overlay that. It's the it's identical. The goal from building something from nothing to something both of what they describe is almost identical. And it's a beautiful thing. And I think that you're you're creating a community of doers that people who haven't done something yet, but want to do something, your podcast, your interviews are absolutely a resource. And I would recommend them to thank
0: you so much. If you're listening, get on it, go back. Let's do it again. (laughs) I thank you. Thank you for the endorsement. By the way, I almost forgot. I only remember this because Drink Prickly, we were talking about uh, Kim's Convenience Store before that episode, before we recorded that, which used to Mm -hmm. come on Netflix. And I remember the story behind that show. And that reminded me of Everything Everywhere All At Once. One of the best movies I've ever seen in my entire life. I had to say that. I had. We were talking about movies and I almost forgot. That is one of the great... I cried, I laughed. I haven't cried watching a movie in forever. It was amazing. like. I felt bad for Angela Bassett, but I'm like, no. (laughs) <laughs> these, I, I, these people it was yo i don't know what to tell you it was that good it was right. oh my god i was jealous it was that good man i wish i could make stuff like this it was amazing. no
1: and the interesting thing about that because my friends and i have conversations about that film and a24 i think that's their either their distributor yep. or yeah we talk about them a lot because a24 and and because we're like anti-corporate in a way yeah a24 is like the perfect example of enabling and supporting artists who have unique visions giving them the resources that they need and then getting out the way and allowing them to soar.
0: A24 is a great studio you know they, just, they I just read that they bought a like a stage a performing stage in New York I did yeah not know that. yeah I love A24 mostly for like their creepy horror stuff but yeah it's I agree with you they're my favorite studio
1: yeah, and, and it's interesting because it's just—I think a friend of mine told me that when it comes to A twenty four, like if you need ten million dollars, but and you have a celebrity attached, <laughs> they're like, "Let's do it." <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. They bought, and we're—I love those episodes. We're all—we're doing everything. They bought New York's Cherry Lane Theater. It's their first venture into live performance. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I like. That it. is very cool. Yeah, that's awesome. So yeah, Maurice, we're going to keep in touch. We're gonna, we got plenty more movie stuff to talk about in Japan. We're, I'm going to Japan. I'm going to call you first. This is happening. <laughs> I'm going to get out there. But thank you so much for joining. Of course. Thank you so much for joining. To everyone listening, Moonlighters Club, we got more coming, more episodes, more work. I have so much more time. This is it's good. The it's a blessing in disguise, but I'll be, I'll be in a good spot because I get to talk to people like Maurice all the time. I'm with it. So for those listening, thank you so much.